Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. It's good to see you this morning. We're going to be in uh, John chapter 2, continuing our series through the book of John. Uh, John is the fourth book in the New Testament, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Um, We're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. The words are going to be on the screen uh, right here uh, behind me, and you can always follow along there on the screen as well. So I'm going to go ahead and read the passage, then I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. Here's what the Word of God says. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. God, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us humble and teachable hearts. God, you know every single person in this room. You know how many hairs they have on their head. You know the secret things of their heart. You know their motives. You know their past. You know what they're going to do later today. You you know what they're going to do tomorrow. You know everything about everyone here, and you know what we need. God, we, we thank you That even though you know us and you know us in our sin, you are still gracious and merciful. And you've brought each person here this morning for a purpose. You've brought them here because you're gracious and you want them to know you despite the fact that all of us have sinned against you. You want to have a relationship with us. So God, I pray for, that for anyone here who does not know you, who's not born again, who does not have a right relationship with you, that today would be the day that that happens, that you would open their eyes to see the grace of God in Jesus Christ and that they would be saved. And I pray that for everyone else, God, for those who are believers this morning, you know what's going on in our lives too. I pray that you would exhort us, that you would encourage us, Holy Spirit, that you would spur us on and teach us. We love you, God. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So has anyone here ever lost their temper? Yeah. Anyone here ever lost their temper? I think we've all, we've all had that happen before, right? Uh, I, had a, I had a roommate uh, at, after I got out of high school, and um, we, he and I were both big Houston Rockets fans, and we lived in the same apartment. Uh, but he would get 
really upset when the Rockets were losing and uh, like so upset that he would uh, punch holes in the wall. Uh, and so like we literally had multiple holes in the wall in our apartment and of course security deposit went down the drain. Um, and, you know, he would just get enraged sometimes when they lost, especially when they blew a lead, which was really common uh, for the Rockets back then. Um, I mean, we, we all tend to you know, lose our temper. And I think off, most of the time we associate anger with stuff like that, right? We think about anger, we think about somebody flying off the handle and punching holes in the wall irrationally. And, and that's true, that, that anger can take that form. Because uh, typically when we as human beings get angry, our anger is tainted with sinful motives and sinful desires. And it's typically not under control. But anger in and of itself is not a bad thing. Just think about it for a minute. If you were to hear that there were a bunch of young girls being trafficked in your neighborhood, and you heard about that, and your response was to shrug your shoulders in indifference, what would that say about you? Well, it would say you're either evil, twisted, or you're crazy, right? Like one or the other. That's not a normal response to just shrug your shoulders at something so vile and heinous and wicked. There's a reason that when we hear about stuff like that, what's our instant reaction? We get mad, right? We're, we're angry at the injustice. It's called righteous indignation. The natural and even righteous reaction to something so horrific is anger. In fact, to not be angry would be wicked. And God feels this righteous indignation every day as he watches the arrogant, sinful rebellion of humanity against him. It is good and right for God to hate sin and injustice. And yet, as his glory is spurned and he is dishonored, his mercy and his compassion holds back his righteous and just wrath towards sinners. As much as God hates sin, he is also love. God loves people. And Jesus' actions and his words in this passage reveal, reveal both of these things in the passage. It reveals God's anger at sin and unrighteousness, and it also reveals his love and his patience for people. See, Jesus' anger in this passage, is not random or out of control. As the Word who was made flesh, His actions and His answer to the Pharisees and the religious leaders are meant to reveal who He is and what He came to do. And this morning, I want to answer a couple of important questions about this passage. First of all, why is Jesus so angry? What is it about what's happening in the temple that got Jesus so angry? And secondly, what does he mean when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up? I think that Jesus is signaling two things by his actions and two things by his answer to the Jewish authorities, okay? So there's two things that he's signaling by his action of overturning the tables and driving out the oxen, and then he's signaling two things by his response, by his answer. And so we're going to look at those Uh, this morning, all right? So let's talk about Jesus cleansing the temple or driving out the money changers and uh, the merchants. What is the meaning behind that? Well, to help us understand, uh, we need to kind of get some context here, all right? So in uh, verse 13, it says that the Passover 
was at hand. So the Passover was a really, really big deal uh, for the Jewish people. Okay, uh, They were in Jerusalem, and at Passover time, Jews and God-fearers from all over the Roman Empire would travel to Jerusalem to worship God, and they would bring sacrifices, or they would, uh, you know, they would bring sacrifices, or in this instance, what would happen is they would buy the sacrifices from the merchants, and then they would present those sacrifices. And uh, the Passover was meant to commemorate the time when God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt uh, with mighty works. Uh, he sent the ten plagues on, on Egypt, and ultimately Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. And so they were commemorating that time. And so what's happening here is that oxen and sheep and pigeons are being sold for the sacrificial offering so that the people who are traveling from Rome, for example, don't have to haul a sheep with them the whole time. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody here has ever traveled a thousand miles with a sheep, but it's not easy, I'm sure. I haven't tried it. Um, but it especially would not have been easy without like a trailer and a, you know, a, a, a dually you know, diesel or something like that pulling it, right? Um, and then the money changers were there to exchange currency because only a certain type of silver coin was accepted for the temple tax. And so if you've got people coming from all over the Roman Empire, they have different types of currency. So the same way if you, know, you were to travel to uh, you know, another country and you would have to go to a currency exchange so that you could purchase things, you could use money. And so that's why the, the, the merchants and the money changers were there. And so you might hear that and you go, well, what's the big deal? I mean, that, that seems like a pretty reasonable service, right? It kind of makes sense. That way people can exchange their money. They don't have to you know, haul these animals all over the place. But Jesus obviously doesn't approve. He's pretty enraged. And he takes the time to make a whip. And then he drives out these huge oxen and these sheep. And he's overturning tables. I mean, like, get your mind, like, put yourself in there. He's making a scene. This is not like a quiet thing, okay? Like, this is, a, this is like a, a giant scene that's being made here. So, why was Jesus so upset? I mean, he's, is he just losing his temper? Look at his response, and I think that we can come away with the reason why. Look at verse 16 again. He says, he's driving, uh, he's driving out those who sold pigeons, and he says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So, the purpose of the father's house was to seek the Father. That was the purpose of the temple. It was, it was to come and worship God. You went to the temple to worship God. That was its purpose. But the people, especially the leaders, had twisted its purpose. He says they made it into a house of trade. The place where people ought to come and to worship God was instead being used for the purpose of a marketplace. Rather than seeking God, the leaders were seeking a prophet and using God and His house to do it. Do you see why Jesus was so angry? Instead of, when Jesus walks into the temple, His Father's house, instead of the sound of hushed prayer, of reverent worship, of songs of praise, instead of that, the temple was filled with the sound of bleeding sheep and lowing oxen and jingling coins, and merchants calling out for customers to come to their table. But it gets worse, because not only had they turned it into a marketplace, they were set up in the temple complex 
likely in the outer courts of the temple, which was the court of the Gentiles. It was the place reserved so that the Gentiles, the nations, could also come and worship God. So by setting up there, they were literally keeping foreigners out of the temple, keeping the nations uh, and inhibiting them from being able to come into the presence of God and to worship Him, which was Israel's purpose in the first place. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, He said, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 says that, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that God chose the people of Israel and set them apart as His people so that through them He could draw all nations to Himself. They were to be a light and a witness to the nations, but instead they were hindering the nations from coming to Him. So Jesus' actions here were a prophetic pronouncement of judgment upon the leaders of God's people for allowing this to happen. Israel's leaders cared more about selfish gain than the glory of God and the good of the nations. Their worship was impure. It was hypocritical. They were actually using the worship of God to get what they really wanted. Money. Unfortunately, you can readily find churches and leaders out there like this today. Many so-called pastors or church leaders will use godliness as a means of selfish gain. Jesus told us to watch out for them. He said, you will know them by their fruit. They will say nice things and use Christian words. They will appear as an angel of light, but they are ravenous wolves who seek to devour God's people. Church, be very careful and discerning about who you listen to online, about who you listen to on YouTube. And this is why it's important to be a part of a church and to be in discipleship, to be in community with other Christians. This is also one of the reasons that we as your pastors are here to shepherd you, to help fend off the wolves. So if you have a question about a teaching that you hear online or about a certain teacher, come and ask us about it. Like We, we want to be able to talk to you about those things. And if even we ourselves, God forbid, should ever teach anything contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we also must be held to account. That's one of the reasons, again, why we have a plurality of elders. There's not one pastor at the top and he's like the CEO of the church and the buck stops with him. That's not how we do things. That's not the biblical portrait of what a church looks like. There's a plurality of elders. There's shepherds and teachers because there's no one person that has all the gifts of the Spirit inside of him who's suit, suited to be able to just run the church. That's dangerous. And this doesn't just apply to teachers and to leaders. Guys, we all need to be examining our own hearts and asking, am I seeking to worship God from a pure heart? There's a huge difference in coming to God because you love and treasure God more than anything else. And coming to God because you believe He's a means to an end of getting what you really want. It can be a very subtle difference. Let me give you a couple of just examples. I'm just going to literally make up. These are a couple of scenarios. I'll just make up. These aren't real people. These aren't real situations. But they could be real. So Carl 
prays out loud, and he shares insights in Bible study. And Carl hopes that people will think that he's a godly person and that they'll be impressed with his insight as he shares. This is impure worship. Carl is seeking recognition for himself and he's praying and he's saying things out loud that might even be the right things to say, but his desire is ultimately that attention and adoration would be directed towards him, not towards God. Here's another example. Bill and Susan are faithful churchgoers. They go to church every Sunday. They're involved in the church. They've made a habit of, but they've made a habit of coming to worship on Sundays and pretending that things are great in their marriage and that their walks with God are going awesome and they keep a quiet time and do their devotionals. But all the while, they know that things aren't great in their marriage and they know that things aren't great in their walk with God. But they want to keep up appearances because the worship of God has become the means to getting what they really want, which is respect and a good reputation in the community. But pure worship for somebody like Bill and Susan looks like confessing sin to God and to others. It looks like asking for help and receiving God's grace as enough. God desires a broken and a contrite heart. Friends, examine your motives. The difference between pure and impure worship can be so, so subtle. And it's possible even to become blind to it, to not even see it in yourself. I mean, just look at the blindness of the Jewish leaders here. Just think about it. I mean, when God himself showed up to his own house to correct their worship, they looked at him and said, who do you think you are? Talk about blindness, right? Brothers and sisters, don't think that you can't go there. Let none of us think that we can't go there. 2 Corinthians 13 says, If anyone thinks that he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. Let's plead with God to keep our hearts humble and pure. This doesn't mean that your worship will be 100% pure all the time, okay? We're all going to battle sinful desires and false motives are going to creep in. But the point is, where's the desire of your heart? Are you seeking God for God, or are you seeking God for what you can get from God? That's what Jesus is driving at here in John chapter 2. So Jesus' actions, though, weren't just a rebuke. It was also a declaration of his identity. By walking into the temple and essentially rebuking all of Israel's leaders, Jesus was also making a declaration of his authority over the temple. He was saying, I'm the one who has the authority to do this. He was pointing to himself as the Messiah. He's not just some random guy walking into the temple and telling all the religious leaders they're doing it wrong. There's a a couple of clues in this passage that tell us that we're on the right track here when we say that by doing this, Jesus was pointing to himself as the Messiah. Let Let me show you a couple of them. First of all, In verse 17, it says that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So that's Psalm chapter 69, verse 9. It was a psalm of David, uh, and David wrote that psalm. He was 
uh, he was being persecuted by others because of his passion and his love for God. Uh, but this psalm ultimately points to the Messiah. It was known as a messianic psalm. So uh, it was expected that the Messiah, the Savior of God's people, would have zeal for God's house. And that he would be the ideal king of Israel, the true leader of God's people, because he would love God with a pure love and with a pure heart. And so by authoritatively clearing the temple, Jesus is announcing that that's exactly who he is. He's the ideal king of Israel who has true zeal for God's house. So that's the first clue that points us in that direction. The second thing that indicates that Jesus was pointing to himself as the Messiah is in verse 18, because the Jewish authorities ask him for a sign. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What does that mean? Well, the Jewish uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and all the Jewish pe- people knew very well that the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses. And so it was expected that when the Messiah came, that like Moses did in Exodus, that he would perform signs to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. So make no mistake about it. The religious leaders know exactly what Jesus is claiming right here when they ask him for a sign. They say, okay, so you're the prophet like Moses? Prove it. Show us a sign. If you're the prophet like Moses, do something right now, and then we'll believe you. That's why they're asking for a sign right here. And again, this just highlights the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, the Jewish people had been waiting for the Messiah, but when he came, they were so blinded by the sin of selfish gain that they didn't even recognize him. In fact, they viewed him as a threat. And then look at Jesus' answer in verse 19. He answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So they ask for a sign, prove it. If you're the Messiah, do do a sign, do a miracle. And he says, okay, knock this temple down, and I'll raise it up in three days. In essence, what Jesus is saying is he wouldn't show them a sign on demand. He would demonstrate his authority, but it would be on his own terms. It's important to note that it's still this way with God. You know, I've met some people who say, well, you know, I, I don't want to believe in God unless he shows me a sign. Until, unless God shows me a sign, I, I don't, I'm not going to believe in him. But guys, God is not subservient to us. He doesn't do our bidding. He's not going to perform miraculous stunts to secure our allegiance. He is God. And besides, not even a miraculous sign can give spiritual sight. Because remember, Jesus is going to go on to perform many miracles, but it was never enough. The call, listen guys, the call for a sign on demand was just an excuse for the religious leaders to avoid having to confront the word of God who stood before them. They knew they were in sin, but they suppressed the truth. And I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm talking to anyone here, but I have to ask, is that you? Are you making excuses for why you don't believe so that you can avoid the reality that Jesus is Lord and He's commanding you to bow before Him? If that's you, then I really hope that you'll pay attention to what I'm about to say. Because... Jesus is so much better 
than you could ever realize. Jesus, he answered the request for a sign, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Everyone there at the time thought that Jesus was talking about the physical temple. But John clarifies in verse 21 that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. So there there are two explosive truths contained within Jesus' answer here that I want to show you. The first thing that Jesus is telling the people here and us through his answer is that he's, he's prophesying his own crucifixion and resurrection. He says, destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus prophesied that the Jews would kill him, and they did. But he said that he would raise himself from the dead, and he did. This is his hour. It's the reason that he came. And this is truly amazing. Only God could say something like this. Only God can say, I'm going to lay my life down, but then I'm going to take it back up again. How could he do that? Because as John 1 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's God. That's how he can do that. But why did he do it? What was the purpose of him laying his life down and raising it up again? Well, Jesus came to die for sinful people just like you and I. Remember, this is all happening at Passover. Passover celebrated the night when God passed over the homes of the Israelites who had the blood of the lamb over the doorposts in Egypt. The firstborn of every Egyptian was struck down, but God's people were delivered. It taught God's people that atonement, a substitute sacrifice, was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, by dying on the cross as the innocent, perfect Lamb of God, is that sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins, and neither can your good works. There's nothing you can do to level out the balance of your sin. Either you must serve the sentence for your sin, or Jesus must serve it for you. And the wages of sin, the sentence, is death. That is why he had to die. But the grave could not hold him. Three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating our great foe, death. And now, whoever repents of their sin and believes that Jesus died and rose from the dead will be forgiven of their sin and receive the free gift of eternal life. That's an invitation to every single person in this room this morning. You can do that right in your seat. You can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how terrible your past is, when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. He drained all of it. This is why Jesus came, church. And in John chapter 2, he's calling his shot. The religious leaders didn't hear this as good news, though. They heard a threat. And it, it really made them mad. And, and it made them so mad, actually, that they remembered it for two and a half to three years. In Mark chapter 14, verse 58, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, when he's at his kangaroo court of a trial, 
as they, they've arrested him, they've brought him before the, the Sanhedrin, they actually use this as, the, as one of the accusations to try to bring against him, to have him condemned to die. Mark 14, 58 says, we heard him say, there's people pointing at Jesus before, as he stands before the high priest, and they say, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So Jesus' words here are used against him as an accusation. And then a chapter later, as Jesus hung on the cross in Mark 15, 29 to 30, we read this. It says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They hated him. They were angry that he had said this. They were furious that he had said, had the audacity to say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They held on to it for three years in their hatred and their rage and they used it to spew filth out on him as he hung on the cross. Why did it make them so mad? Because it was a direct challenge to their sin. To bow to Jesus and acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah that day would have meant giving up what they loved most, and they wouldn't do it. Guys, the gospel does that. It will always cause one of two reactions. Either humility leading to repentance or hard-heartedness leading to judgment. The only way you will bow to Jesus is if you see that he's better than any substitute that you could worship. When you treasure Jesus above all, your worship of him will be pure. And it will be easy for you to say, along with the Apostle Paul, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and counted as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Where are you at this morning? I pray that if you are not a Christian, that you're humbled. And I pray that you see that despite your sin, God loves you. And that Jesus died so that you could live. I invite you to turn from your sin today and place your faith in Jesus. Now, There's one more important and amazing truth that Jesus is communicating in his answer that I want to show you. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So by referring to his own body as the temple of God, Jesus declared himself as the new center of worship for God's people. Jesus declared himself as the new center of worship for God's people. So this is, I hope, try to track with me because this is amazing. I want to take you through a thread here in Scripture real quick. This is, I was very excited to share this this with you. It's blowing me away this week. So in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where man came to meet with God. Now, God is omnipresent, but he promised to dwell amidst his people, Israel, in a unique, manifest way. He did so in the tabernacle while Israel was in the wilderness. So as they wandered in the wilderness, the presence of God uh, was in the tabernacle. There was a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night that rested over the tabernacle, uh, indicating God's presence with his people. And then uh, after the people of Israel came in the promised land, King Solomon built a more permanent structure, a temple, and, and the presence of God inhabited the temple. But then 
we fast forward to Ezekiel, and in Ezekiel chapter 10, the presence of God departed from the temple. Because the people of God continued to turn to idols and to transgress God's law. So God's presence departed and His blessing departed from His people. And the Babylonians ended up coming in and destroying Jerusalem and destroying the temple. And they took the people of God into exile. But God promised... Excuse me, sorry, I lost my place. But God promised that the people of Israel would return to Jerusalem. And He promised that He would once again return to His people, that His presence would be in, be with His people. Uh, in, in the book of Ezekiel and along uh, with the prophet Joel, uh, both of them prophesied that God's presence would once again dwell in His people. Joel 2.28 says that it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. So Joel chapter 2 tells us that God's presence would not dwell in the temple, but within God's people. And so a remnant of Judah did return to Jerusalem after they were taken into exile. And and you can read about how in the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah helped lead the effort to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But the presence of God did not return to the physical temple after the temple was rebuilt by Nehemiah. You see, rather than inhabiting a physical temple, God came in the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or the Word literally means the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Colossians 2.9 says that in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when Jesus came fully God and fully man, it, it ushered in a new era for God's people. God's presence no longer dwells in a physical tabernacle, in a physical, uh, in, in a physical temple mediated by the Levitical priesthood, but now the presence of God, the fullness of God was in the person of Jesus Christ. And, so by, and that's what Jesus means by referring to his body as the temple of God. He's announcing the end of the old way of coming to God, which was through the law, and through the sacrificial system, and he was announcing the beginning of a new way of coming to God. So we do not come to a place to enter God's presence, but to a person, Jesus. And this was God's purpose all along, that the temple was never meant to be permanent. The temple and everything that came with it, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, the ceremonial cleansing laws, all of it points to Jesus. No more priesthood is needed. No more sacrifices for sin are needed. Through faith in Jesus, you can come directly to God. And what about that prophecy in Joel about God's Spirit being poured out upon His people? That's exactly what happened. Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 16, uh, right before He was about to be arrested and crucified, he He told them, I'm going to go away. But it's better for you that I go away because then I can send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and He will come. So after His resurrection, Jesus told the disciples to wait until the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they would receive power and that they would be His witnesses. And so in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, that's exactly what happens. The Spirit of God was poured out 
upon the church. And now we collectively, as God's people, the church, we are the temple of God. Wherever the church is gathered, the presence of God is there in his temple in the same way that the presence of God inhabited the temple in the Old Testament. In the same way that the presence of God inhabited Jesus Christ. The presence of God is with his people. We are the body of Christ with Jesus himself as the cornerstone of the temple. Uh, here's what Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 says. It says, you are fellow citizens. He's talking to the church. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a temple holy in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is a dwelling place for God. There are a lot of implications for this, for our lives. Um, I'll just give you three as we close. The first implication is that the way into God's presence is through faith in Jesus Christ. I just want to reiterate this for you um, because there is still a lot of confusion on this. There are no priests that you need to go through to get to God. There's no special place that you need to go to that has a special anointing of God's presence. We don't need to conjure up a, a Holy Spirit atmosphere in the room. There's no man or woman that you need to go to who has a special anointing of God to impart to you. The way into God's presence is through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus by faith and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and he will come and make his home with you. That's all you need to do. You don't need to give an offering to an apostle of a church. None of that stuff, all right? Second implication, the presence of God is with the people of God. So if you are a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, it means that you, along with other Christians, make up the dwelling place of God. Now, maybe you, you would ask, well, if the Holy Spirit lives in me as a Christian, why do I need to be a part of a church to worship God? I mean, if, if God's presence is already with me when I'm at home by myself, if I have the Holy Spirit, then, then how can you say that, you know, I have to come to church and be around other Christians to be where the dwelling place of God is? Well, it's because God's presence is with us in a way when we are gathered that he is not when we are not gathered. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You can worship God at home, yes, but no one person has the fullness of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Christians need other Christians. You cannot be a church unto yourself in your home. Christians who neglect to gather as a church miss out on the fullness of what God has for them. Because the Spirit of God ministers to us through one another when we gather. By the way, this is why we place such a high emphasis on gathering physically as a body. It's why it's painful, you know, we, going through that period that we went through for a couple of months of not being able to gather physically. That's hard because there's a real sense in which we are missing out on this spiritual union of where two or three are gathered. There 
the presence of God is amongst us, where we're all using our spiritual gifts and we're all ministering to one another, it's difficult to do that online. Because online, you're at home alone and you're watching one person use their spiritual gifts rather than everybody using their gifts. So that's why it's important to, to gather together as a church. You guys tracking with me? So gathering as a church, it's not something we do out of obligation. It's not something you do to be a good Christian or, you know, to make sure you're staying on track, all that stuff. We don't do it out of obligation. We, we gather in expectation that God is in our midst <laughs> because the Bible tells us he is. And that's, that's awesome. I mean, we should come ready. When we come to gather together on Sunday mornings, we should come with anticipation and excitement. Like remembering, man, two or three are gathered. God is there. I'm going to meet with God. I'm going to the dwelling place of God. Like, that's the reason that we sing for joy. That's the reason when you read in the, in the Psalms, let us go into the house of the Lord with loud shouts and songs of praise. Why? Because God is there. Let's go and let's, let's gather together on Sundays with anticipation and expectation. Third implication, last one I'll give you, is your body is a temple, is a holy temple of God. Your body is a holy temple of God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Paul says that as Christians, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God dwells within you. So do not allow impure worship to persist in your life. I was talking with Chad, one of our, one of our other pastors this morning, and, and, and he, he posed the question a great way. And he said, if, if Jesus were to walk into the temple, into your temple, like he walked into the temple in John chapter 2, how would he react? If he were to come into your life and examine what's going on in the temple of your body, how you're using your eyes and what you're listening to with your ears and where you're going with your feet and what you're, what you're setting your, your, your mind on and your affections on, would he have reason to be upset? Would he find pure worship from the heart or would he find impure worship? And Jesus cleansed the temple because there was all manner of greed and selfish gain happening in the place where God should have been glorified. Our bodies are not our own. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that you've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Don't grieve the Spirit of God by allowing sexual immorality or idolatry or covetousness to remain peacefully in your life. Fight it. By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. This is a serious thing, guys. Don't desecrate the temple of God by making peace with sin that God hates in your life. That's dangerous. If you are a Christian, all right, don't desecrate the temple of God by making peace with sin that God hates in your life. That's dangerous. If you're a Christian and the Spirit of God truly dwells in you, can I tell you something? He's not going to let you be at peace with your sin. He will graciously make you miserable until you come to your senses. And I hope you see that's a good thing. That's, that's, that's the love of God making you miserable. Because he's not going to let you do something that's going to destroy your own soul. He will, I mean, he'll make you miserable. He really will. And, and if, if there's anybody in this room this morning, you know you've been living in sin, I pray 
in the name of Jesus that you are squirming in your seat this morning, but I also pray in the name of Jesus that you recognize the grace of God, that He's so good that if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if you've called on the name of the Lord Jesus and you're a child of God and you're born again, that that conviction that you feel, it's not punitive. God is not trying to get back at you or get even with you. It's discipline because the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. He loves you and He's drawing you back to Himself. So come back if you need to come back this morning, okay? Jesus might be doing a little bit of loving, cleaning house with the whip in the temple of your body. It's because He loves you. So don't despair. I, I like how Titus 2 says it. He says, the grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live upright and godly lives. I'm going to call the worship team to come up as we close. And in today's passage, we've, we've seen that in his actions, Jesus declared his authority over the temple and judgment upon the leaders of God's temple. And in his answer, Jesus announced his death and resurrection, and he declared himself as the new center of worship for God's people. Those are the four things that were revealed by Jesus' actions and his answer. So I want to invite you now to pray and reflect as we get ready to close. How does God want you to respond? Do you need to repent this morning of impure worship? You can do so without fear. I love one of my favorite promises in all of the Bible is Psalm 51, 17. It says, the Lord will not reject a broken or repentant heart. That's, that's an awesome promise, isn't it? Like there's no caveats on that. There's no, you know, like, unless you do this or unless you do that. He says, I will not reject you. If you come to me with a broken or repentant heart, no matter what you've done. Come on. Amen. Man, come to him this morning. Why, why would you not? Why would you not receive that gracious invitation? Maybe you just need to praise and thank God this morning for his presence, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that your body is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that his spirit, bear, spirit bears witness with yours, that you are a child of God. As your heart cries out, Abba, Father, whenever you think about God and you, and you cry out to him because you love him, the reason is because he changed your heart and he gave you a heart to know and to love and to fear him. Praise him for that this morning in your seat. However God wants you to respond, I'm just going to ask Carrie if you'd play, brother. Um, and let's just bow our heads and spend some time this morning praying and responding to God in the way that he's calling you to.
Lord Jesus, we love you. And Lord, we, we confess and repent of the fact that oftentimes our worship of you can be tainted by selfish desires. And we ask you, please forgive us. Oh God, please continue to change us from the inside out. Sanctify us, oh God. Give us clean hands and a pure heart that, that worships you with pure motives. Help us, Holy Spirit, to put to death the deeds of the body, to live in a manner pleasing to you, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's our longing and our desire. God, I pray for anyone here who's not born again. Lord, may nobody harden their hearts like the religious leaders did in John chapter 2. But may, God, may you produce soft hearts. May people, may their hearts be softened and humbled before you. May they see how good you are, Jesus. May they come to you and not harden themselves towards you. God, thank you so much for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sin, for rising from the dead, for sending the gift of the Spirit. Thank you for being amongst us this morning, for being in this place where we're gathered to worship you. We pray that you're pleased with our worship. We pray that it's a sweet smelling sacrifice to you, God. We pray that as we close out our time together, that we would sing at the top of our lungs to the God who's worthy of all of our praise and adoration and worship. May you be magnified. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.